You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and hematologist and also an LLS volunteer. I'd like to thank all of you so much for joining us on this episode, where we'll be discussing shared decision-making between patients and the healthcare team. This episode will focus on the role of the caregiver, including for patients who are minors and shared decision-making when the patient is a healthcare provider themselves and other special situations. Today, we'll be joined by Dr. Daphne Friedman, who is a staff oncologist at the Durham VA Healthcare System. She's an associate professor at the Duke University School of Medicine in Durham, North Carolina as well. Daphne, thanks for joining us. Thanks, it's a pleasure to be here. So Daphne, I have to say, I have really been looking forward to talking with you because I think this is such an interesting issue. It really gets to the core of, of what we do in treating patients with blood cancers because so often, in fact, probably each time we see a patient, the decision-making is medical, but there's a lot else involved, basically focusing on quality of life and self-determination. And sometimes there are different ways to treat someone for the same disease with two roads leading in the same direction and patients help us make that decision. And again, one more thing before I go on, just to share my excitement about it, is that the very process of shared decision-making, at least in my eyes, is part of that process of building a doctor-patient relationship. With all that being said, what is shared decision-making and what does it mean to you? Well, you know, I agree with you. I think that the conversations we have with patients are really important And that comes down to when we think about shared decision-making, when we're recommending a certain treatment for patients, because especially in hematology and oncology, there may be more than one option and the selection of the appropriate way forward might depend on a patient's preferences, their comorbidities, other factors, which we may not be aware of. So taking that time with a patient to explore that is really important and I think is part of that, you know, shared decision-making approach to care. One thing that I really enjoy and really was part of the reason why I went into this field was because I enjoy having those conversations with patients and not being like paternalistic in terms of telling people what they have to do. Having cancers a point in patients' lives that they are really scared and maybe feel like they're out of control and can't contribute. And so when a physician or other healthcare provider is talking with their patient and in this shared decision-making modality, then it gives some control to the patient and makes them feel like they're part of the team, which not just makes them feel they are part of the team, But it's so important, I think, psychologically for patients, as well as for picking the right treatment and the right way forward for a specific patient. Yes, I agree. And 
You know, if you would, can you share an example of shared decision-making with your patients? Yeah, so one example that I think is a really good one has to do with the care of patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL, because, you know, now we've moved out of using chemoimmunotherapy as a mainstay of treatment. We've moved into targeted therapies. And so a lot of times I'm having conversations with my patients about whether to use BTK inhibitors or use venetoclax-based therapy. And like you mentioned at the beginning, I work at the Durham VA. So most of my patients are older patients with comorbidities. And so then since there are two treatment options, which are both highly effective, but haven't been compared head to head to know that one is better than the other, then it kind of comes down to talking about the side effects of the different treatments, like the duration of treatment, the monitoring of treatment. And I think this example is so good because like a Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitor, it's easy to take, it's oral, but it's continuous. It's continuous for the rest of your life as long as you're tolerating it. And of course, there are things that we monitor and side effects that we have to think about, but it's kind of easy for the patient. It's just another medicine. There's a lot of polypharmacy for the patients that I take care of. And so sometimes it's just a kind of an easier, not much extra barrier to like just add another medicine. But then the other situation of like venetoclax and a CD20 antibody is it's a time-limited therapy. So that's nice that you get to stop treatment, but the treatment itself is more complex with more visits, more risk upfront from like the tumor lysis syndrome or the infusion reactions that might happen. But once you get through those first couple of months, it's usually smooth sailing and then you finish it out and you stop it and then you can go into monitoring. So in the VA, a lot of veterans are older, have comorbidities, and they also typically have a long way to travel from there. They might live in very rural areas and might be driving, you know, an hour or an hour and a half to get to my facility. So then if I'm asking them to come once a week for TLS monitoring or for CD20 antibody infusions, that is a real barrier to them that even though, you know, they could have a payout after a year or two of discontinuation of therapy, they might select to go on the oral medicine, which is much easier for them to take. So that's weighing like pluses and minuses for each treatment option when we know from a medical perspective, both are excellent treatment options, but we have to think about what's right for the patient. Absolutely. So what are some of the challenges you see with shared decision-making, both theoretically, but even more so in practice? That's a great question. You know, sometimes from a provider perspective, our clinic schedule is so packed, double booked. How are we going to have those conversations? It's more, sometimes it might just be easier to say, this is the medicine I want you to take. And let me just tell you the side effects and away we go. So to have that uh, larger conversation takes time. And if you have other patients waiting in the waiting area to be seen, then you feel like you're doing a disservice to them to keep them waiting. So I think that's one really big issue that we have to deal with. Something that from the patient perspective that I don't really think about because working in the VA where it's kind of like socialized medicine, but in the private sector, I think there's probably insurance issues to have to deal with, like the cost of oral medication versus IV. That might come into it when the patient is thinking about what is going to be like, that that might be like a, a cost barrier that comes into it, or there might be some other financial barriers, like if they have to arrange for childcare or elder care and transportation to come to weekly 
monitoring visits when they're getting like a venetoclax ramp up, for example. So that could play into it from a barrier perspective from a patient. And then also, I mean, another thing to think about is the education or the educational level or the understanding of a patient of like the medical system and their understand like healthcare literacy. So if you're trying to explain something that's kind of complex to a patient, you know, one patient, these ideas might not be very complex and it might be easy to have that conversation. Another patient might not have a very high education level and it might just be too much and they might just be looking for you to tell them what to do. So let me ask you, what do you say about patients who are sitting with you and they say, you're the doctor. Can you just tell me what to do? And what about these patients who don't really want to be involved in the treatment decisions? How do you deal with that situation? It's interesting that you mentioned that. I think that there's such a variability amongst patients in terms of what they're looking for. I have some patients, like you mentioned, that are just really looking for for the physician to tell them what to do and feel like they need to give respect that the physician is in a place of authority and just do what the provider tells them to do. Whereas there are other patients that I know that kind of, or that I have that kind of question me on everything. Like, well, I looked this up on the internet and I went here and did you look at what was just on ASH? Like they're asking me if I, because they've looked at the professional meetings and they're up on all of that or you know being involved in LLS and there are different groups and the patients talk to each other and so then they're coming to me those patients come to me saying kind of being more vocal about what they want based on what they've learned from other people so it's hard to suss out what that is at the beginning sometimes you have an idea like oh I'm really into shared decision making but then when you finish your conversation with the patient, they just stare at you and say, well, whatever you want to do. So then you feel like you've wasted your time. I guess maybe one way of dealing with that could be, you know, to start out when you initiate the conversation with the patients to say something like, I like to work together as a team, the, you know, the doctor and the patient, and we work together to understand about you and about your disease. And we have different options. And I need information from you to help me guide you in what is the right treatment. Does that sound right to you? And then if they say, no, I don't, I want you to tell me what the right thing is, what the best thing is. I'm trusting you. You tell me, then you know where they're coming from. And if they say, well, I already know what I want, so we don't have have to have this conversation, then that also would be helpful. Absolutely. And I have to say, as we're talking, I'm reassociating with the fact that all of us as healthcare providers are patients at some time or will be patients, you know, in a variety of different situations facing minor illness or facing major illness. So what about patients who are healthcare providers themselves and may have a, a deeper understanding of their illness and of medical treatment options? How does shared decision-making work with this population of patients, with us as healthcare providers when we're patients? Well, I've experienced this both from the side of being a patient and from being a provider. So as a physician, I feel like whenever I have a patient who has healthcare background, I feel like I'm being judged 
I don't know, maybe you've ever had this feeling too, that like, they're going to know that I'm not listening to all four points on the cardiac exam. Like I've only done two of them or that I didn't do a good enough spleen exam or something like that. Like they're going to know that I've abbreviated it in some way. So sometimes like as the provider, as the oncologist, I feel like the patient who has a healthcare background is going to be more judgmental of me. And then I feel like I need to maybe tread lightly or I don't really know how to enter in in that dynamic because it's different than a dynamic where I know everything and the patient basically doesn't know anything or only knows what they looked on the internet or something like that. So that feels different. But I also wanted to touch on from the patient perspective because what I've found is being a patient when I go to see a healthcare professional, a lot of times they make assumptions about what I know. Like they'll say, oh, well, you're a doctor, so you you know this. And it's like, yeah, but I want you to pretend like I don't know anything. Because when the doctor thinks that I know everything, then they might gloss over some things or not explain things. And who knows if I would have known that or if I didn't know that, but that's missing information that if I didn't know it already, then I am not getting that information. So whenever I'm in the situation as a patient, then I say to the healthcare professional seeing me just, it's okay. It's okay to go over it. I'm not going to be bored. I would like the review. And so then I think about that when I'm being a doctor, that I try to come to it to the patient and I try to say to them, like, I want to just start from square one. Like, I don't know what you know. So just bear with me for a moment while I go over this and explain this to you. Or sometimes I might ask the patient, like, I feel more comfortable because I don't know what you know already. I'd feel more comfortable if I just explain things from the beginning, just so I know that we're on the same page, that I know what you know, and you know what I know. Then usually the patient says, okay, sometimes they're like, no, 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 I have specific questions I have from you because I already know all of that. But for the most part, people are okay with some repetition. Definitely. You know, because I have taken care of healthcare providers before, my own uh, approaches, I'll typically say, you know, I know that you know a lot about this, or I think you may know a lot about this, but I'm going to talk with you as if we're really talking about the basics because it tends to keep me well organized. And what I find typically is, how, you know, doctors, nurses will look at me and say, thank you. Uh, that's exactly what I want. So I agree with you. I think it's always better to start with the basics because we really don't know what someone else knows at this part of their career about their particular illness. Right. Like maybe the patient who's a doctor feels like maybe they're going to be tested on it later on their knowledge or partial knowledge of the disease that they haven't thought about since medical school. You're right. And just because someone is in the healthcare field doesn't mean they deal with this type of medicine in their daily practice. So as you mentioned, it may have been a long time since they heard about these details Daphne, I want to ask you about another group of patients. I know you treat a lot of older adults, but you treat some younger adults as well. So what are some of the unique characteristics of those conversations, shared decision-making with young adults? Occasionally, we do have younger patients, like in their 20s, and either for benign hematologic conditions or for like, you know, Hodgkin lymphoma or testicular cancer, things like that. And that can be challenging just because patients are in a different place in their lives. You know, a younger person in their 20s is thinking about starting a family. 
There's stresses about like buying a house, where they're living, uh, navigating the relationships with significant others. It's really different than having a 70-year-old who's a grandparent and has been married for 50 years and is retired. So for younger people, they deal with a lot of like there's a lot of additional things that they're worrying about. But I do feel like they tend to want to be more involved in their decision making and have more input. Yes. And I agree with you. Young adults have a lot of transitions happening in their lives all at the same time, as people say, moving pieces. And I think all of that affects their healthcare decision making. I'd like to ask you two questions that are somewhat related to this. And the first is about patients who come into your office who've reviewed online resources or websites or may come in with an alternative approach to the treatment that you prescribe. And then also, what about patients who are seeking a second opinion? How is shared decision-making different when talking with them? Yeah, that is a great question. I think just wanted to first say that sometimes those online resources can be really helpful for patients, but can also be hurtful for patients. So sometimes patients will get scared or get overwhelmed with the information that's out there. And they have to be told, just stop, just for your own mental health, just stop being involved or with that group or reading online or whatever, because they need to be mentally in a place of just focus and not be distracted by other things. But generally, I try to be very positive or favorable about that and try to keep an open mind. I mean, even when people are coming with kind of wacky ideas about, well, I read on the internet that I can take like dewormer medication. I literally have a patient who is taking like dog dewormer medicine because he thinks that it will help his lymphoma. And I had to say, well, you know, I don't know about that. What I know about is what's been studied in medical studies. And it's not to say that wouldn't work. It's just never been studied. So I don't know. And I can't recommend that. So I try to like be very thoughtful about it and not dismissive because I don't want to make the patient feel uncomfortable and then they'll never come back to see me. So I want to be supportive and try to guide them to resources that are more, I guess, establishment, but also based in medical literature and expert guidelines, but still trying to validate why they're doing what they're doing and explain why it might not be the best direction to go towards. But you had a second question about having like second opinions and that can also be challenging in different ways because, you know, usually when there's a second opinion, there's a reason for the second opinion. There's an agenda that the patient has. And so I usually try to start the meeting with the patient to ask, what can I do for you? How can I be helpful? For the VA, a lot of times people are trying to transition their care to the VA for financial reasons, but sometimes they're coming for an actual second opinion because their other doctor told them something and they just wanted confirmation by somebody else or a different view of their records. So I just take those situations, try to ask the patient what they want out of the conversation, out of the appointment, and then tailor the meeting towards what they're looking for. 
Daphne, often dealing with patients with blood cancers and other serious diseases, we're also spending a lot of time with family members and caregivers. And sometimes everyone is on the same page and sometimes they're not. So I think as many of the listeners know, and, and I'll share with you as well, my wife, Joan is an AML survivor for 22 years and thankfully is doing well. But when Joan was in treatment, we'd go to see her doctor, her oncologist, and her name is Carol Miller, by the way. And Carol would say, Joan, how are you doing? And Joan would say, oh, I'm doing fine. And I would be in the back of the room shaking my head back and forth saying, no, no, she's not doing well. You know, she was in fact, very, very depressed at the time. So how do you deal with those situations? Oh, that's a hard one. I think as you were talking there, I was thinking about two different things. So one thing is that as patients, when we listen to a doctor saying something to us, we're not going to remember 100% of what they say. So if you don't remember 100% and you're taking what you do remember to help inform your decision, you might have forgotten something that was a really important piece of information. And maybe your decision is like, so when you were talking about you and your wife, I was thinking, well, maybe she had an idea based on what she remembered, but there might have been something that she didn't remember that you knew that was shaping your thoughts. I, I don't know. I wasn't there, obviously, but that's what I was thinking about. And then the other thing, too, that I was thinking about as you were talking was that I feel like, especially in hematologic malignancies, there's a lot of times shades of gray or there's like diagnostic overlaps, different diseases, which kind of don't fit exactly into a certain bucket. And a lot of times that uncertainty can be really hard to communicate to patients and when there's that uncertainty, then the treatments that are recommended might be different. So you might go to different doctors and have different recommendations just because of the fuzziness there. And sometimes there isn't just one way, like kind of what we talked about at the beginning about different treatments that are both appropriate, but just have different side effects. And some doctors might be more aggressive and other doctors might be less aggressive, um, so that can be really challenging for the patient, I would imagine, to try to make a decision when they're getting different information from different oncologists that don't seem to really connect. I agree with you. Those are challenging situations for patients. And one of the roles that I enjoy is trying to help people navigate through those, trying to understand, you know, how are the opinions the same? How are the opinions different? Are the opinions vastly different or are they similar? And what about patients who just don't want to know? How do you communicate as a provider for patients who don't want to be involved at all in the decision making? Yes, that does happen. It makes me think about a patient many years back who had relapsed diffuse large cell lymphoma. And I tried to engage in shared decision making. And he said to me, you know, the teacher in Charlie Brown, and I said, yes. And he said, when I hear you talk, that's what I hear. And I don't know anything about medicine, but all I know is I've got lymphoma and I need chemotherapy. So could you set that up for me? And once he said that, I was, you know, clarity was right there, like cut to the chase. I just had to move forward. You know, in our system in the VA, we do, as I'm sure every other place, there's 
informed consent before chemotherapy is administered and we have written informed consent at our facility. And so in that situation with that patient and other patients like him, I, I just have to say, well, I know you trust me and you just are going to do whatever I say, but right now I'm required to go over with you the chemotherapy that you're going to get and the side effects, and then we're going to sign a document that says that we had that discussion. So they need to just be aware that that, even if they're kind of seeding the decision-making to just be only for me to do, they got to be there in the room with me while I tell them what the side effects and the purpose of the therapy are. And then, you know, knowing that that's what they want, then I kind of operate from a place of, I don't really need to involve you in, I just need to kind of update you on how you're doing, but I'm not going to ask you for your opinion about what's going to happen. I'm just going to tell you. I have to say, I love that example of Charlie Brown. Uh, so thank you for bringing it up. For patients who are looking for additional support, what resources do you recommend? I frequently recommend resources from the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, so both from educational perspective and to encourage patients to be involved with other, you know, peer support or if they do want to give back to the community of other patients going through similar experiences to what they're going through. But then other resources besides that, you know, depending on the type of cancer the patient has, other patient advocacy groups. Other facilities like Mayo Clinic has some good information online, the NIH, or National Cancer Institute, American Cancer Society. So I try to like tick off a couple different options. And at our clinic, unfortunately, we don't have something to hand out, but I know at a lot of clinics, they do have kind of a handout that lists resources for patients to seek out. And I try to explain why those are better than, you know, just Googling or going on Facebook or something like that. Absolutely. Well, this has been a wonderful uh, conversation on shared decision making. Thank you so much for joining us today, Daphne. Thank you. It was great talking with you, Ken. Thank you all for listening to this informative episode. For a listing of all of our healthcare professional continuing education activities, podcasts, and healthcare professional resources, please visit lls.org CE. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one -on -one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatments, financial, and other support resources. And I encourage you to sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. We look forward to you joining us on future podcasts. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.